Metabolic syndrome is also referred to as syndrome X, and it's actually a sort of clustering of conditions. There's a huge amount of it about, although we're saying that specifically one in four people in the UK will have it. So I will sit down with them and just sort of explain the process behind. And I think, again, that's a great thing that we can do. We can, like I say, educate these people. We can make them understand what's actually going on in their body. Hello, and thank you for joining me today on the Natural Healthcare Network podcast. My name is Deb McLeod, and I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in. Today, we have Phoebe Liebling joining us. She is a registered nutritional therapist, and she and I are going to be talking about a rather complicated health condition called metabolic syndrome. So I hope you sit back and enjoy learning some of the top tips that she has to share and gain insights on how to break something that is really quite complicated complicated down into simple steps on how we can help our clients. Thank you so much for joining me today, Phoebe. It's great to have you here. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm very excited to be able to talk about metabolic syndrome. It's a little bit of a passion of mine. Um, so yeah, thank you for asking me. It's great. So shall we just start from the very beginning? You and I were talking about this just now. Can you just give us a little bit of the what is metabolic syndrome exactly? Sure. So metabolic syndrome is also referred to as syndrome X, and it's actually a sort of clustering of conditions. Um, The actual sort of specific diagnostic criteria has been revised a couple of times, but the most recent revision was in 2005. And it sort of states that you would have three out of five of the following, which would be an increased waist circumference. Some people refer to it as central adiposity, and that would be over 40 inches in a man or over 35 inches in a woman. Um, You'd also have a blood pressure reading that was over 130 over 85. So that's your systolic and diastolic measurements. You'd also have increased fasting triglycerides and they would be over 150 milligrams. Your fasting glucose would also be high. So that would be over 100 milligrams. And your fasting HDL would be low. So that's your fasting high density lipoprotein. That form of cholesterol would be low. In other, like the World Health Organization refers to things like the fasting glucose, but they actually refer to it in terms of insulin resistance. So basically, it's looking at all these different markers. They refer to things like heart health, um, blood sugar response, those kind of things. But that's what we're generally looking at um, when we talk about metabolic syndrome as a whole clustering of those things in one individual. We were just talking about the... um recent paper where who says they've defined it as a pathologic condition it's crazy Mm. um and also that it's a major health hazard in the modern world i mean this is insane isn't it really well that's what they've said actually that now that we've sort of conquered in inverted commas most of the communicable diseases that actually this is now the major global health hazard as a non-communicable disease it's entirely of our own making um, and this is what's coming after the sort of the global population in terms of all cause mortality, really. Um, yeah. And a third of adults in the US have it at the moment, which is quite a scary figure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, what is it? I think we, I saw one in four in the UK. So it mm-hmm. is something that is um, more prominent than people realize. So um, if we, you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about that, but what is it that's really got you mostly interested in that? What's your reason for wanting to talk about metabolic syndrome? Well, so I think obviously there's a huge amount of it about, although we're saying that specifically one in four people in the UK will have it, from the criteria that I've just listed, it's very likely that you're going to come across this with clients or just sort of people within your clinic because 
rate sort of increased central adiposity, a little bit of weight around the middle, that's very common. Somebody with a mm. cholesterol issue, that's very common. Blood sugar imbalance, incredibly common. Um, so there's that part. But I also think that as a sort of a group of conditions, it's one of the most fantastic places to allow functional medicine or sort of nutritional therapy to really shine through. This is the kind of thing that we do fantastically well. This is exactly what it's designed to sort of, I'm not going to say the word treat, but address um, in people. And I think that in order to sort of raise awareness of lifestyle medicine and the fact that people can take ownership of their own health, these kind of conditions are where we can do that. We can educate people to stop at this point, sort themselves out and not return to it in the future. This is not the time when we want to chuck medications down people's throats because all that's going to happen is we end up with more and more polypharmacy because you get you take one med you've got to add another one because you've got something else in the future and you haven't really addressed the underlying cause which is what they're feeding themselves and how they're living their lives so yes I'm all for kind of pushing functional medicine to the forefront with these kind of things and hopefully standard medical practitioners will agree that this is where we can work very beautifully alongside them they can deal with acute care and trauma and all the wonderful things that they do and we can deal with the chronic and uh, happily share and there's plenty of research to back it up that we can help people from a food-based standpoint versus throwing them on medication which is as you said going to knock them on to having more issues more health issues just because that's what polypharmacy does, isn't it? It is. No, I was going to say, I totally agree. I have the utmost respect for orthodox medicine. I think it is fantastic. And I think it does wonderful, wonderful things. If I am in respiratory distress, if I can say it, I'm going straight to A&E and I'm hoping they're going to look after me very, very well. I'm not going to be thinking about doing something else um, through my own kind of balancing and what I then plan to eat for breakfast the next day. Because if they don't sort out the respiratory distress, I'm not having breakfast the next day. But what I was going to say is in terms of just a perfect example, if we're talking about this cluster of conditions specifically, if we look at high potency statins, which are everywhere, and if you've got somebody with a cardiovascular disease risk and they sort of go to their doctor, there is a, I'm going to say over 50% chance they will then end up with you on a statin. And what we can now see is that high potency statin use in people with or without diabetes raises their HbA1c, their long-term blood sugar regulation marker. So if you are trying to think about how we can not end up with somebody meeting all the diagnostic criteria for metabolic syndrome, well, then one of the things we probably want to do is deal with their cholesterol in a way other than giving them a statin if it's then going to raise their risk of making their blood sugar go wonky. Do you find a lot of your clients come in are already on statins? or <clears throat> various other meds that you have to work alongside the practitioners what do you find i find that i find a mix and that is something that i actually wanted to talk about because obviously in terms of even just dietary approaches and using supplements we have to be aware of the way that they interact with medications but probably i would say it's it's a bit of an even split there are people who are more aware now that they don't want to be taking medication and they come to me because they've been sort of shown blood tests that say they're pre-diabetic and they are cautious of going on to meds. Um, but then there are other people who do come in and either they are aware of the fact that they are taking a medication and it could have side effects, but they don't know enough or they're sort of listening to their doctor and they don't question past the point of having that small little inkling that maybe they should say something about it. <laughs> um, and then there are others who are just the doctor has written this prescription. He's told me I'm unwell. Therefore, I must take this forever. 
And that's the point at which the walls come down. And all that means then is you have to work a little bit harder, not to try and change their mind. There's absolutely no point in trying to change somebody's mind who's like that. But you have to show them your offering and say, well, this is what we've got to negate when it comes to your long term health because you are taking X, Y and Z. So I would like you to therefore be even more diligent about doing my bits and pieces so that you don't get the negative side effects of that. But we also give you the positive side effects of the dietary and lifestyle things that we're doing. And should there reach a point in future that you would like to have a conversation and I will write to your other consultant, other physicians and maybe lower your dose of something, then we can have a conversation about that further down the line. Um, But I would say that for most people who come in with two or more of these issues, they're more than likely to be on at least one medication. And if they come in with one, maybe they haven't been uh, medicated yet. So that sort of leads me on to when they come into you and talk to you, talking about what are some some keys to your success? I mean, how do you work with your clients so you enable them to have some some good wins um, and get that buy-in in in the nicest possible way? It is a negotiation with our clients, really, isn't it? Mm. And I I think actually for the first session, a lot of the time, I sit down and I'll ask them to bring their blood test or maybe I've asked them to get some new blood tests because the previous ones they had, they got diagnosed with prediabetes in February and they've worried about it for seven months and then they've come to see me later on in the year. So we get a battery of new tests and actually see what our real baseline is. And it's just going through because if they get given a piece of paper from their doctor, sometimes they don't even get a phone consultation. They'll just get a flag up saying cholesterol, high, blood pressure, high. Blah, 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 and they don't really understand it. And for a lot of people, they're quite nervous and they will actually think they're about to keel over and they don't really know what to do. Yeah. Um, so I will sit down with them and just sort of explain the process behind. And I think, again, that's a great thing that we can do. We can, like I say, educate these people. We can make them understand what's actually going on in their body. Now, I'm not saying sit down and conduct a science lesson. Um, I actually tried this once (laughs) with somebody and I got told that I sounded like an insurance salesman and I didn't really know what to say. (laughs) Um, (laughs) If you do this, then you might get a really good rate or whatever. Exactly. uh, I was trying to explain how her, um, I think it was about how her insulin response had gone a little bit wonky or something like that. And we actually needed to get her cells to communicate a bit better with her bloodstream and all that kind of thing. But she stopped me about 10 minutes in and just went, I'm really sorry, but I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. I thought, oh, God, I've really missed it at this point because I thought I was being quite clear. Um, no, so I think it's more my 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 first bit is about reassurance you've got to build that it's going to be a long-term process if you've got somebody coming in with these things you're asking them to buy in and buy in with you as this kind of it's going to be cooperative thing together you can give them everything and if they don't trust you if they don't believe in it they won't do it yeah um so that first session a lot of the time is reassurance building that trust between the two of you and working out what is actually manageable for them to change. Because again, if we look at things like the risk factors for these kind of conditions, the first one is age. This is probably not going to be something you get in a 35-year-old. You might get somebody who's exceptionally stressed and they've got slightly odd cardiovascular measurements or maybe their blood pressure is a little bit high. But when we start to get more than one of these things, they're going to be a little bit older. Are they slightly less mobile? Or are they very busy still if they're working? Are they, if they're on a med, is it, effect, is it affecting their energy levels? 
Or are they not sleeping particularly well because of their symptoms? Do they have other symptoms like nighttime urination? All of these things come in together. So actually, a lot of the time, say if it's an older man, one of the big things I have to sort out first is their sleep. If they've got prostate issues, I've got to get them getting good night's sleep because if they're not, they're not going to get up and do some exercise and they're not going to make good food choices. Um, so like we say, the buy-in, the getting the wins, yeah. maybe the first month or so, a lot of the time for me, it's getting people to be energetic and feel vital. We don't really talk about, like that will obviously come under sorting out things like their blood sugar regulation, but we won't really talk about their blood pressure so much or their cholesterol levels. I'm going to get them feeling able to actually sort of climb this mountain with me just by sorting out their sleep and their energy first. Um, and that's quite an easy one. Well, I say easy in inverted commas. If you can get somebody into a good sleep cycle and get them having a more protein rich breakfast without really talking about anything else. Yeah. And they feel energetic compared to having felt sluggish for the last seven months. When they come back to you uh, four weeks later, they will trust you and they will then start doing the extra bits, which might be a little bit more difficult for them or sort of a bit more of a, a general challenge to their ingrained habits, which is probably what you're going to have to then deal with, which is a bit more tricky. Yeah, I think you're right. And it, it, it is those easy, easy wins. I was talking with someone yesterday who has diabetes and did really well. She went full tilt on everything and now she slipped back into old habits and she's just overwhelmed because she knows she's got to do so many things and, and is she just doesn't know where to begin. And we just started, I just said, well, let's start with breakfast. And she was surprised that we could just do a very basic thing to start focusing on breakfast so she could just eliminate some of the stress that she was feeling from being unwell. And it's those things that that we always, I think as practitioners, we want to do everything, don't we? Oh, yeah. And want to help them as much as we can. But it's, I think you're right. It's not overwhelming them. And I really like that you are very open about saying you went through a full-blown education. And, and it's really sometimes they just don't want to know it. But, no. you know, it's it's down to understanding what they really want to hear because they'll say that and then we start educating them, but not at the point that they really want to hear. No. Does that make sense, what I just Absolutely. Said? And I would say, I think, again, it's it's that experience. So when I first qualified, I was very much a kind of like, right, this person's walked into, into my clinic. It's going to be fantastic. I've got every single thing. We're going to soak beans and pulses. We're going to be doing parasympathetic breathing before every meal. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> There's going to be broccoli sprouts, all this kind of stuff. And the person sat in front of me and I'm thinking, my goodness, if I can get them to eat brown bread, I'm going to be onto an absolute winner here. So it's definitely kind of realizing that as a practitioner, you know a lot and these people really don't know that much. So if you can kind of just get them, like you say, to swap, a lot of the time I'll say things like, what are you having for breakfast? And they're having cereal with milk. And I'll say, well, how do you feel about eggs? And they go, absolutely no way, not going to happen in the morning. I don't have time. And this is not the point for me to say, well, if you hard boil a couple of eggs when you're making dinner the night before and then have that on a piece of rye bread in yeah. the morning with some avocado, it's going to take less time than having cereal with milk. This is a point for me to say, well, how about instead of the cereal you're having, you have muesli and instead of having milk, you have milk and yogurt together. And that's it. Like mm. that's not a particularly difficult swap. It's just buying two different products in a format that is exactly what they're having already, but it's a step in the right direction because you've got more protein, more fiber, less carbohydrate. And if they feel a little bit better on that, then next time we talk about hard boiling eggs, um, 
on having avocado and rye bread and those kind of things. It really is just about the negotiation then, isn't it? I, I mean, I, I think that's what we all have to do. Um, I, I think there's always sort of that, there must be one thing that really you can do to, to that's going to help your client because that's what we're trying to do. But it really is down to negotiating mm. so it suits their own lifestyle so you get those wins in Absolutely. for them, not for us. No. That's the other thing. <laughs> really not for us, it's for them. I was also going to touch on your very important point about stress. And I think that one of the things that is probably actually more important to address before you start picking into their diet and, well, it's, it's more about sorting out their lifestyle. There is the most incredible book um, by Dr. I always, I don't know if I can ever say her name properly, um, Mitu Storoni, and she wrote a book called Stress Proof. And she's a neurological ophthalmologist and she talks about things like the stress response and how it affects the body, but it very much goes into things like autoimmune conditions and also blood sugar response and all of those kind of things. Um, and what she, she makes a brilliant analogy about boiling an egg. So if you are, if, if we humans were eggs, when you kind of arrive in your wonderful natural environment, you are sort of perfect. You have this outer protective shell and the inside is all fluid and flexible. And then as soon as you expose that egg to heat and the equatable thing in us humans would be stress, your shell remains completely unchanged, but your insides are changed beyond recognition. Um, and I think that's what we kind of need to be aware of, that this person sitting in front of you has presented with these issues. But if their lifestyle and the environment in which they're living is going to continue to perturb them and it's going to do things like naturally raise their set points for their blood pressure and their insulin response. Whatever you do within their diet and whatever you do in other bits and pieces will only have a limited effect yeah. because that those lifestyle um, influences are going to continue to hold them in a state where they physically can't burn excess fat or they physically can't get their blood sugar levels down because their body has maladapted to being more stressed so definitely again within that first session for me a lot of talking happens to try and work out if they are one of these people who sits there and their shell is absolutely perfect but inside they're a kind of boiling cauldron of work stress poor sleep anxiety about their children money troubles all those different kinds of things that you I mean that wouldn't fall under a, a sort of a, a nutritionist banner but as a functional medic that's very much something that you need to be aware of and have tools to be able to help them with. And if it's out of your scope of practice to deal with that side, then have a wonderful web of people who you know you can refer on for additional support for that person. Absolutely. That's where the, the naturopathy really comes in to its own strength, doesn't it? Of looking at a root cause so we can identify best ways to really support them. Mm. And I, I think saying, you know, talking about the body being maladapted to stress really hits it right on the head because we get so used to it. And then we're just, we've put, or the person's put themselves into this whole new pattern. So it's a slow one pick. Yeah. Um, which is just going to take loads of time. Now, I don't know if this is going to be the right segue, but talking about identifying what's going on with them, how you can help them identify the issues that they have makes me think about testing. Do you do much testing with clients at all other than sending them to the GP? Do you do any other diagnostic testing? Absolutely. And I think that as sort of nutritional therapists, naturopaths, 
one of the things that you probably want to definitely get an eye in on is their gut health. I mean, it probably isn't the first thing that you would sort of jump on board with. But if you think about somebody who has been eating the classic diet that might get them into this situation, it's probably not particularly rich in prebiotic fiber. It's probably quite high in things like refined carbs. Maybe they're having sort of very high saturated oxidized fats, those kind of things. And that can play absolute havoc with things like their intestinal flora, their stomach acid. Again, it's quite a classic one to find somebody who's been using antacids or acid sequestrants, bile acid sequestrants as well in these situations. So actually getting things like their digestive system sorted is going to be quite important. So doing a standard stool test can be really, really helpful in sorting that out. Because again, when we start thinking about dietary protocols and the approaches to sorting this out, a lot of the time we're going to want to do things like liver stimulation and we're going to want to burn fat. And if their digestive system isn't working to eliminate those toxins, we're just going to be chucking them back into the bloodstream to be recirculated. Mm-hmm. So it, as I say, it might not be the first thing that flashes into mind, but um, stool testing, very, very handy. If we then look beyond the GP, um, actually, no, let's, let's stay with the GP because to start off with, you can get quite a bit from a GP just to build that initial trust. Uh-huh. So you want to look at things like people's iron studies. You want their blood chemistry, which would be their kidney and liver function. You want things like their, glom- I can never say this, their EGFR which is their filtration rate through their kidneys, because it should be over 90. If it's less than that, again, link with blood pressure. Are they actually dehydrated? Is that something you need to address? Are their electrolytes completely off? Is it just that they've become a bit sluggish and they're actually not eliminating waste properly? And that's then meaning that you're getting a bit of a backup. Um, So they're all things you can get through the GP. Also, vitamin D is integral for so many things and for things like diabetes and all of these kind of risk factors that we're looking at, knowing somebody's vitamin D level and getting them up into an optimal range is just a basic thing that we should all be doing. Um, Vitamins B12 and B9, so folate, again, it's, I mean, we can look further into that, but just knowing these kind of markers, so the way that they interact with iron when you're thinking about energy levels, that's a really handy thing to have. Um, And you can also get uh, just generalized inflammatory markers. So things like your CRP and your ESR, they're not going to tell you sort of your breakdown between things like your omega-3 and omega-6 fats in terms of information that way. But you can do that separately. Uh But they'll give you an overall guide as to how inflamed that person might be. Um, And if you've got a very good GP, you might get homocysteine. But that would be something that you have to really probably push for it might be through a private GP or private cardiologist because that person has already got an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and then you can get basic blood lipids so your cholesterol measurements and your HDL to LDL ratio and again if they're slightly older having things like um, testosterone levels in a slightly older man will give you an indication on their energy levels um, and those kind of bits just so you can get like I say you can get quite a lot from a GP um so make use of that resource because again if you've got somebody and you're getting them to buy in with you be aware that some people's budgets are limited so if you're going to think about supplements if you're going to try and get them to change their dietary habits if you want them to maybe start using a trainer I mean there are lots of different things that money can go towards so get what you can for them for free um and then if we start looking at private testing, I mean, they're fantastic panels. I, I love the Genova CV Health with Genomics panel. Um, so you can right. get in and you can look at things like 
MTHFR mutations because when we want to look at things like homocysteine recycling, if they've got a genetic mutation on their MTHFR, they're not going to be methylating folate, which means they're not going to get that recycling going. Um, you can look at things like uh, APOE, which would tell you about moving dietary, removing dietary cholesterol from the blood. You can look at uh, lipid particle size and number when you look at your HDL and your LDL and the way that that would then influence their risk um, of those markers in the body. There's loads of things that you can look at. But again, I probably wouldn't do this in the first session. This would be unless I might do the stool testing and I'd get the GP referral bloods. But unless you've got somebody who's already a, sort of up in the 85% buy-in, I'd be cautious of saying, right, so you've come in today. We've got lots of things to do. First of all, the first thing before we do anything else is I want you to spend X amount of £100 on all of this test, these testing bits and pieces. Um, so I'd phase them in. And it might be that you can do plenty just having the GP tests and track them over a period of time. And it would probably be more if there's a significant family history or they're not actually responding to things. If you find that you've got somebody who is persistently, they're doing the things diligently and they're, and they're just, they're, say, HbA1c is persistently high um, or their cholesterol levels are really not balancing out, um, those kind of things, then I might say, right, I really need to push you to do this because I think it's quite integral. Um, but otherwise, kind of look at it more that, well, we do have this. If we can go there, yes, we'll do it. If it's not an option, we it doesn't mean that we're going to be ineffective. I think that's always a thing to come back around to. Just because we can't use these things doesn't negate what we can do with everything else. No, I know. I know. It's a screenshot anyway of what's going on in that moment, but still it gives you a good guide and lets you know if it really is what you thought it might be. But some people just can't do the tests or don't want to. So it's really helpful to know about the Genova tests that you like to use and great that you get such good feedback from your GPs. It's really helpful to have GPs that are open to those tests for their patients. So you've done the testing. If you, I guess this is going to kind of step back a bit. I'm going forward and stepping back if we talk about the conditions themselves and we start breaking it down um how do you assess the individual that comes in and and sees you mm -hmm. is that okay for us to talk about that yeah i will also i've just i've had a sudden flash within my gp testing i definitely didn't mention anything about fasting blood glucose or hba1c but that would definitely need to be in your panel um and i would also just say going back to my original point about this being a fantastic place of functional medicine to shine write letters to GPs. Mm -hmm. I mean, they might not read them, but at least they're on that patient's file. And what you might stumble across, which has definitely happened in the past for me, is that you find somebody who's incredibly interested or incredibly sympathetic towards holistic therapy and that kind of thing. And a lot of the time I'll speak to a cardiologist and I'll think, I'll imagine in the back of my mind, it's a an older gentleman sat in a suit in a lovely private hospital. And actually I'll get an email back from his secretary saying, he would love to meet you. Can you dash in at this point? And it'll be a 35-year-old young guy who's an enthusiastic cyclist. And we end up having a really long conversation about the use of probiotics for endurance events. Cool. And so definitely keep those lines of communication open. Um, it's fantastic for clinical advancement for, me, for yourself because it's a referral network. Yeah. But also it's just it's a really good thing in terms of keeping people updated. And if you do have conversations about medications and that kind of thing. Um, it's a very good idea just to have all of that down on paper. And it makes 
it makes you very good at writing letters. Let's say that as well. Well, it's important. I mean, and using the terminology that they want to see. So it shows that you're not, it shows that you're switched on and that you're thinking about the client and that you've got some science to back it up. So that's really helpful. That's a good tip. Mm -hmm. I like that. So are you happy to move on and talk about the conditions themselves or how you start where you began, the different types of conditions and how you assess the the client that comes in to see you? Absolutely. So, I mean, this is one of those situations where we say, right, let's break it down. Let's unpick this massive web. Um, what I think I'll kind of talk about now is we've, we're obviously doing this under the banner of metabolic syndrome as a collection, but I think we'll, instead of saying that everybody who comes into you must have all the criteria, we'll say that you might just have a couple of them, but we'll sort of just touch on them anyway. So you've got somebody sitting in front of you and they have got blood pressure issues. They've also got blood sugar issues. They're also a little bit fatigued, all those kind of things. So the main link between all of those is obviously inflammation. Or I kind of tend to look at it that your body has sort of forgotten how to communicate with itself. And that's what I tend to, how I tend to explain it to people rather than sort of saying, right, so you've um, got to the point now when your cells are resistant to the action of insulin and you're not taking glucose in from your bloodstream and getting it into the mitochondria and they all go completely blank. I sort of say, well, your body's now in the situation where it's actually become a little bit stiff and inflexible. And that is to do with a number of different things, mainly this inflammatory process caused by, again, a number of different things. But that's probably your primary driver. That's then being exacerbated by maybe slightly poor liver function. Um, you're not moving particularly well, or you're really not moving at all. Are you completely sort of sedentary and inert, which actually a lot of the time people are? It's mm-hmm. one of those things you will find the the ten thousand steps a day, which I find to be more of like a, a for me personally, I walk a lot more than that. But it's very usual to find somebody if you ask them to wear a pedometer that had an alarm on it, it would probably scream at them because they're barely reaching one and a half to two thousand steps a day, and that's just the way that people are these days. I wonder what the average was actually. So that's quite interesting. I think it comes down to the idea that so, for example, now and both you and I, I'm I'm sure, are aware of how good we can feel. So we're very aware of what average feels like. If a lot of people live in mediocre grey, they don't really know what feeling really good feels like. So actually to them, Mm -hmm. that I talk about when it comes to physical activity, there's a three-week buy-in. And I say to them, you have to give me three weeks or or give me four weeks because that's the next time we're going to see each other. The first week, you might be motivated or you have me in the back of your mind saying, come on, you've got to get moving. If it's actually doing more kind of training, um, if it, it might just be walking, but it might be sort of actually getting into the gym, maybe doing a little bit of weights or maybe doing some Pilates or going for a swim. The second week, you actually feel that a little bit. You feel a little bit tired. Things are a little bit sore. They maybe ache and you've got and your motivation has dipped a little bit. And you also don't tend to see results because things like muscle fibers might be a bit damaged. And so they'll be a little bit swollen. So you might feel a bit bloated. You probably won't have lost weight if people are actually numerically tracking, which, again, is something I tend to avoid getting them to do. Um, And so then there's a sort of like at the two week point, a lot of people will give up because they're like, I'm not seeing anything. I feel tired. I'm a bit sore and I don't really want to do this anymore. And so I say, if you can get to the three week mark, what you'll suddenly notice is the body goes, oh, hello. We quite like doing this. This feels good. We're getting rid of metabolic waste now. The metabolism is generally going a bit faster we're probably eating a little bit better because we know that as soon as people start to move, 
they reoxygenate themselves better, they have a change in mindset, they make healthier food choices, all of those kind of things. And then they start to see small physical changes within their body. And maybe they start to sleep better as well. So that's the thing I, I've gone a bit off topic, but three weeks to four weeks, if you can get somebody moving and get them past the two and a half week mark, you're onto an absolute winner there. Um, and then it's just kind of keeping yeah. that motivation going past the point of emailing them saying, have you done 8,000 steps today? <laughs> Which I, I don't do, yeah. but um, I do encourage yeah. them to give themselves a little pats on the back when they do do those kind of things but yeah so it's easy to get obsessed hmm. yeah sorry to interrupt you and talk over you but I, I think it's absolutely all part of it really keep going so I was just going to try and scan back to the idea of actually breaking things down I think this comes back again to listening to the person in front of you and a lot of the time again I think we as practitioners we have so much information to share we really want to talk and actually the best thing we can do is sit and just listen and occasionally make very sort of Yes, agreeable noises and ask a pointed question, that kind of thing. But actually, people will tell you what they need. So if they've come in and they've they've got a pre-diabetes marker and their blood pressure is really high, their GP is aware of all of this. And to the GP, they're going, right, your blood pressure is really high. I want to put you on a beta blocker because I'm really, really worried. But this person is sitting in front of you and said, but I've never I never eat sugar. I, I feel like I eat a really healthy diet and I am quite active and I mean, it's really, really worrying me. And so even though within what you're then going to do, you will be addressing their blood pressure as a primary focus from your perspective, gear what you're talking about, about the blood sugar, because that's the bit that's stressing them out the most. Because um, you're never going to do one thing in isolation as a functional medic naturopath. No. Everything is going to come into it. You just obviously have to prioritize in terms of what's manageable. But when it comes to actually breaking down the person in front of you um I think it's really important that we gear our language to suit their needs even though we know we're doing everything I often will say right so what is it about this that is causing you the most upset and they'll say oh I'm really really worried about my cholesterol and I'll say okay well your cholesterol is actually 5.1 which is not too bad um the one thing I am slightly concerned about is the fact that your HDL is 2 and your LDL is 3.7 we want that to be more in a ratio of one to one, but your overall measure is not causing me huge amounts of distress. And so if you sit and say that in a nice calm voice and say to them, actually, the bit that I'm more concerned about is the fact that this stress over this blood test that you've had sitting in the back of your cupboard for six months is causing your blood pressure to go up and it's causing your blood sugar to go up and it's causing your sleep to suffer. They're the bits that I want to put my focus on because they're the bits that concern me a little bit more. So you've calmed their fears on one side, you're saying that you're going to address everything and you've also given them that reassurance that you've got it all in hand and automatically you can almost see that person in front of you take a deep breath and that blood pressure will start to come down just from the tone of your voice. Yeah. So I think that's when I actually talk about my clinical approach, there's obviously all the science behind it and I'll talk about exactly what I do with their diet in a second. But the most important thing is sitting there and being a sounding board for what they need and listening and reiterating and understanding them as that individual and giving them that reassurance that they can trust you and you've got it all in hand. Because then you're going to start saying, right, I want you to walk up and down a hill and have three cups of dandelion tea for your kidney function. And they'll go, what? <laughs> <laughs> but if you said it in a very nice, calm way, then they'll do it hopefully 
<laughs> I love it. It's true. Well, they're scared, aren't they? I mean, you know, they're overwhelmed and they can't hear. Um, they can't hear what what people are saying. So having that calm, you're absolutely right. Being their sounding board for what they need and really listening. Um, so they will tell you what they need. Are such key points for us all because, um, again, they're frightened. And they, they just hear that they have some health condition or they fall into so many other, you know, we're part of a statistic. What do we do now? We're going to be doing X, Y, and Z. But, you know, that, that dandelion tea, believe it or not, is really going to make a huge difference in their lives. So it absolutely is. <laughs> absolutely. So which leads us on quite nicely to what you do with them from a, a food or a nutritional standpoint. How, what, where do you begin? Okay. So, I mean, there are there are many things you can throw at this wall. So I'll talk about specific diets in a second. But I think, again, what we can sometimes fail to do is think about the general points. And people do ask me in terms of general clinical approach, the one thing I will get a lot of the time is an email from a client saying, how long do you think this is going to take? And so <laughs> yeah. I say, and this will be before I've met them for the first time. Um, and so I'll say, well, I actually can't really give you an estimate. It will be a process that takes as long as it takes. Don't usually use those terms. But I'll say it will take a little bit of time um, because we're going to sort of work with progressive and incremental change that is manageable and practical for you to incorporate into your lifestyle and for you to do long term. And so there's kind of there is that buy in element there. So to start off with the general bits and pieces, as I said, with the stool testing, it's really important that you get their digestive function under control mm. and that it's working really, really effectively. Because as soon as you start to try and change things within the body, you're going to be eliminating waste. And the one thing you don't want is somebody to start feeling bad. And if they start to burn yep. fat cells, which you want them to be doing, they're going to release toxins. And if they are going back around their body, they're going to feel flurry, they're going to have a headache, they might get acne breakouts. And those kind of things can really demoralize someone. And what you don't want is for that to happen a third of the way into the process and then them to disappear. Um, yep. So first of all, very much things like just getting them to drink water. I had a woman the other day who actually walked in and I asked her about her water intake and she said that she had three cups of tea a day. And I said, any water? And she went, Yes, so I have three cups of tea. And I said, are they decaffeinated herbal teas? And she said, no, no, English breakfast with milk. And I said, okay, fine. Um, and she said, oh, but I do also have soup because I saw an acupuncturist in about 2007 who said that I should drink soup every day um, because that would be good for my hydration levels. So I have a thing of like a vegetable, basically a vegetable stock cube mixed with hot water um, and have that. And I was thinking, okay, so we've come to a bargain now that she's going to have a glass of water every time she has a cup of tea and that's three glasses of water a day which is by nowhere near where I need her to be in terms of her hydration but me saying I want you to have one and a half liters of water a day she would laugh um so yeah. very very basic do not underestimate the importance of getting somebody to drink water um yeah and also just general things what is their fat balance like most people these days, their omega-3 to omega-6 saturated, unsaturated fat balance is completely out of whack. And when we talk about this ability for the cells to communicate, the flexibility of the cardiovascular system, all of those kind of things, and obviously then triglycerides, cholesterol ratios, you need to know what's going on with their fat balance. And this is the real re-education point. So 
and it ties in with things like fiber. What are they cooking with? How are they cooking? Is it predominantly that they are frying or shallow frying? Can you get them to go to sort of, I even do things like if people are having fried eggs, I teach them how to steam fry an egg. So you take a little bit of kitchen towel. I know it's very, it's very clever. You literally take a bit bit of kitchen towel and then they can either use butter or a little bit of coconut oil or a little bit of avocado oil. um, And you just smear the ever so slight bit on the bottom of the pan. You pop it onto heat. So the pan gets sort of warm if you put your hand about two centimeters above it. And then you crack in an egg, you put a lid on and you turn the heat right down and it just steams within two minutes you've got a perfect egg every single time you've completely like got rid of most of that fat that's in there it's basically just being used to lubricate the pan but there's no actual sort of like fatty oxidized stuff going on with the egg that they're then going to eat and so again you've just changed you've changed the context but you haven't changed the food yeah so they're still having something very familiar but you've just changed the way in which they do it and if you can get them to do that and they're having a fried egg four times a week then that's a massive thing to suddenly take away all those oxidized fats from their routine. Again, educating them about obviously things like processed foods, best not to go for them. If they can step away from fats during the cooking process completely and just be adding cold pressed fats or fat like naturally fatty foods like nuts and seeds and avocado at the point of serving, then fantastic. Again, if you've got somebody in front of you, this is not generalized good health practice. This is somebody with a medical condition that you are trying to affect change as swiftly as you can. So you do need to almost be a little bit more hardline. And this is what I explained to people as well. This is a therapeutic diet. I'm offering you an alternative to medication. So see this as more hardline advice, but it will get us to where we want to be more quickly. So if it was just a, like a day-to-day person, I personally will choose to sometimes roast with oil. I don't always but I will do sometimes. But I know, for example, my inflammatory state is beautifully under control. I eat plenty of omega-3 fish, um, rich fish, and I don't really have any other oxidized fats. I never eat processed food, that kind of stuff. So I know that I have a bit of leeway every now and again. Um, somebody who hasn't got that leeway, I would sort of be very mindful of taking them away from those kind of things. Obviously, the vegetable and the sunflower oils and those kind of things completely need to disappear. Um, yeah, because you have this massive, massive influx of omega six from pretty much everywhere. And even if you're going to get be getting them to have nuts and seeds, obviously that's still it's a different form, but it's an omega six fat. So if their omega three status is exceptionally low, their balance between the two of them is still going to be slightly out. So this is of I mean we're going to go down the supplement route later as well, but you probably want to look at something like an omega three supplement if you can use it with that person bearing in mind if they're on any kind of medication that would influence their ability to coagulate because you can't give omega-3 at a therapeutic dosage if they are on an anticoagulant if they're on things like beta blockers if they're on anything else that would affect that ability to clot because obviously you can put them into a bit of a scary state otherwise um they would need sorry to interrupt you but they would need to um any practitioner would need to go in and check those interactions themselves so they make sure that they're you know providing the right supplementations to their clients for sure absolutely most definitely so yeah at this point you can do so for example um i think it's opti3 they do an omega3 to omega6 ratio test so if you did want to check with somebody you do have that option. who is that uh, opti3 
I think, or okay. it might, oh no, it's, it's the Opti3 test by Igenis. Um, they do, uh, I think it's a finger prick test from memory and you can test the balance, the ratio between the two. Um, because you'll usually, I think the, the optimum is to have sort of one to three, omega three to omega six. I mean, if you can get somebody to one to one, you're doing fantastically well, but it's probably not going to happen. And the average at the moment is actually one to 25. So we're slightly off um, in terms of that as a as a statistic. Um, but yeah, so going back before I go off on a tangent again. So uh, looking at those kind of sim- simple basic things, swapping them away from refined products onto the whole grains. But again, one thing, the reason I start off with gut health is if somebody has got dysbiosis and you suddenly whack up their fiber intake, which you really want to do, my goodness, they're going to be uncomfortable. If they've, yep. if they've had a really fiber poor diet and all of a sudden you're saying, let's have beans, pulses and legumes. Let's have wonderful whole grains. I mean, that's fantastic. You're going to hopefully, well, you probably won't affect change in their cholesterol levels because they're going to hate you and they're not going to be going to the toilet. Um, but you need to be aware of these other factors. Fiber is one that I very, very gradually increase. And I tend to go on the soluble fiber to start off with things like having, I don't know. I mean, some people aren't familiar with stuff like chia seeds, but if somebody would try chia seeds, even things like cooked apples and soaked oats, you've got a lot of soluble fiber, but you've given it with liquid. So that's the other thing. If they're not hydrating well, think of ways to sneak more fluid into their colon which something like a cooked apple with lots of lovely pectin in it is going to go through it's going to stick to bits it's going to encourage waste elimination it's got the fiber in there but it's not going to be something like a whole load of kale and a load of like brussels sprouts which i love and i want people to be having but if they're going from white rice and white pasta with a bit of cheese to six portions of fruit and veg a day it's not going to be a particularly pleasant process for them um so again, that's assessing their diet as an individual. Um, so, but yeah, fiber is exceptionally important. And again, with things like blood sugar regulation, even obviously de- decreasing weight, waste elimination, cholesterol balance, fiber needs to be there, but you probably need to dose up nice and gradually. Um, yeah, I'm always imp- impressed with the humble apple yeah. and all it can do. It is amazing. It really is. So it's just a nice, gentle way and people like them and they taste sweet. So it feels like it's um, sort of a cheat's way to help them uh, improve their health and just simple little things like that. Those are great tips. I, I really like a lot of the things that you're talking about is changing the the context, not the food, you know, just talking to people about understanding how the body's forgetting to communicate to itself. Um, and, and I really like a lot of the words that you use and, and the tips that you're giving. They seem, uh, again, for us as practitioners, a lot of times we just want to go in and, and change everything for them because we can see that they're in a in a poorly state. But um, sometimes that can make things even worse. So it's the go low, go slow. Exactly. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, finding things that are familiar, but then also offering things that are slightly unfamiliar. So like you say, we're giving them something that's, something that's a little bit sweet. A lot of the time, if somebody has been eating poorly for a long period, their tastes have completely changed. Yeah. And so actually finding ways to re well, that's another thing to think about. When you ask somebody, when you're obviously doing your your consultation, check things like their taste perception. Do they crave salt? Is that adrenal or is it because their electrolytes are imbalanced? Do they have a low zinc status, which is actually 
a huge problem. And again, if you've got things like poor sleep, poor immunity, which people probably will do if they're not eating their vegetables and they haven't done for a while or their pumpkin seeds or bits and pieces like that, their overall nutritional status is going to be in the toilet. And so that will then affect things like their taste perception. So are they, like we say, adding salt to things? Are they craving those mustards and pickles and those kind of bits and vinegars that you can tell is because somebody physically isn't tasting as well? And then you've got the issue with tiredness and fatigue and blood sugar imbalance causing them to crave sweet things. Um, so I think it takes about seven days. And I did an experiment um, through social media with another nutritional therapist in America. And we did a, we wrote a seven-day sugar-free challenge. And it wasn't that everybody had to completely eliminate sugar from their diet. But I categorized sugars into artificial, natural, and explain the difference between added and naturally occurring and those kind of things. And obviously, honey is a naturally occurring sugar, but without fiber, it works differently to having a date or an apple. So we just asked people to pick where they were now and go down a level. So eliminate a level of sugar and kind of go more towards the natural. And I decided, seeing as I don't really eat sugar, to completely eliminate absolutely everything I could find, even down to I think tomatoes and peas, which I worked out had more sugar in them than raspberries. Um, and it, I remember that though. I do remember you're doing that. Yeah. And it was, it was really interesting because I, being somebody who, like I say, doesn't eat sugar and has never really had a particularly sweet tooth, found myself waking up dreaming of things like fruit. So it's a very powerful <laughs> thing. Um, yeah. But with somebody, if you can get them to do that seven days and you say, right, so if this is where you're at with your kind of sugar craving at this point, what I want you to do is I want you to give me seven days of not having any of the artificial stuff and go to bananas and go to apples and have a date every now and again, have raw chocolate rather than milk chocolate, then make it dark raw chocolate and just gradually change that perception of the way that they look at food and they start to enjoy it more. And that's the thing you need to ignite a passion because again, that's what you're doing. You're igniting somebody's appreciation of how their food influences their health. And you can get somebody who will come in and say, I hate cooking, food is fuel, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, mm -hmm, that's fine. Obviously, I'm at the opposite end of the spectrum, but I'm still going to make you love what you eat, even if it's broccoli, chicken and brown rice, because that's all you need it to be. And then maybe in the future, yeah. we'll add some lemon juice because that can be exciting. But it is, it's working out that, that bit for that person. Just to, to jump in, I mean, it's amazing how good just plain food tastes. Mm. And it sounds such an odd thing. So I, I absolutely right. I mean, just my own taste buds when I was really young, oh God, but it was just in a, tra a traditional American diet. Um, but all of that changed for various reasons. But now eating just plain foods and broccoli, even just broccoli, it tastes so sweet. It's mm. lovely. It's delicious. So, but people's taste buds, we don't realize how desensitized our taste buds are. Exactly. It's extraordinary. So yeah, I think that's, that was my kind of concluding point there, which was to to make sure that they are tasting food properly and to try and get them to perceive food in a good way. So like we say, the humble apple, if they're used to very sweet things, give them, I mean, an oat cake is naturally very sweet. Give them a lovely bit of warm apple compote with plenty of cinnamon in it, maybe a little bit of fresh or ground ginger, crumble some oat cakes over the top and give that to them as a snack or as like a little dessert. And if they are one of those people who always likes to have something after dinner, you're not going to change that habit overnight. So change the thing that you give them and make it something that will actually 
what I tend to say is I want your food to benefit your body as much as it benefits your taste buds. So kind of, mm. I, I would ideally probably not have you eating after dinner if we're trying to get your blood sugar under control and get your sleep a bit better. So if that's not going to happen right now, what we'll do is what we give you after dinner, make sure that that's supporting your digestive function and it's not giving you too much easily liberated um, fructose and glucose and that kind of stuff. So yeah, again, changing changing the food, but not necessarily trying to break everything in the first second because that can be a little bit heavy for somebody. Yeah, these are really nice. So you're you're slowly getting them to change their foods, to try different things, to wake up their taste buds. So that leads me into diets, which is not the right word, but it is the word that people use. But are there any specific diets that you use with your clients when you're working with them? Let's chat about that. Yeah, let's chat about those. I mean, there are a few and there are some that I turn to more than others, but I'll try and touch on what I consider to be the most kind of popular ones at the moment. Fasting, intermittent 5-2, very, very hot topic. Um, things like high-protein, low-carb diets, um, with or without carb backloading, which I'll also explain. The vegetarian-vegan question, do you go for a keto diet? Do we just actually go right down the middle and go for kind of the original, med- is that what a Mediterranean diet is? Is that the middle ground? Um, and sort of, yeah, let's let's kind of work through this and I'll sort of tell you my pros and cons of each um, and when I tend to use them with different people. So fasting, to kind of start off with, the idea of, let's actually, intermittent fasting is probably the one that people tend to look at more when it comes to blood sugar. If you're kind of looking more at general health promotion and weight loss, 5-2 would probably fall into that category. I don't tend to use it so much for blood sugar. Um but the benefit or the, the idea behind intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, as some people call it, would be that because you're fasting for 16 hours and confining your eating window to eight hours, you're allowing insulin levels to drop low enough that you will start to use up stored fat. And if your insulin levels drop low enough and you're doing the other things like encouraging anti-inflammatory an anti-inflammatory state um, and upping those omega-3s, and probably using maybe a blood sugar support supplement with something like chromium and uh, Ceylon cinnamon in it, you're going to get that sensitivity, that GLUT4 transporter coming up to the cell surface membrane and getting glucose from the bloodstream into those cells properly. There are two sides to this equation. When we've been talking about making things familiar and easy for people, it really depends on the person. So somebody might come in and I'll actually think, you know what, for you, Intermittent fasting is going to be the answer if we start it straight away, because what you can do is you give somebody a routine. And the other thing that you can find is people have completely lost their way with food in that they don't really have breakfast and they have a snack at 11 and they kind of feel a bit hungry at one and then they have a really big munch at four and then they sort of eat dinner, but they don't. And then they have a snack later in the evening. I mean, that's a completely dysfunctional eating pattern and actually giving them right. You can eat a meal at this point to break your fast. You can then have a nice lunch or a snack style thing if you don't want to have particularly much then. Drinking plenty of fluids and then you have a good quality dinner and then you sign off at X PM and then you don't eat until the next morning. To them, that could be absolutely revolutionary and it completely gets them on board. And all of a sudden, they have a regime that just simplifies everything for them. A great example of this would be, I think my aunt's doing this at the moment and she is finding it she just it's amazing for her 
you also don't necessarily have to change somebody's eating habits hugely to start off with. You can give them yeah. that routine just to get into and give them two examples or three examples of a breaking the fast, a lunch and a dinner meal. Or if they say work, uh, uh, they work in an industry that means that they have to socialize with clients a lot. Obviously, you educate them about the kind of foods they'll need to eat if they're out and they're not in charge of their own food and talk about things like alcohol. But within that regime, you don't necessarily have to say, right, well, I want you to be having this. And it's really important that you have this at this point in the day, which can happen with other styles of eating when you have to be a little bit more specific. As a basic starting point, IF could be a really easy one for them to grab hold of. But then on the counter to that, you could have somebody else who's quite anxious. And actually, this concept of not eating for 16 hours puts them into a whole spin and they can't do it. Yep. And it raises their stress levels. So, again, it's about knowing the person who's in front of you and working out whether you really think it will work. But also having a conversation with them. Say there are many approaches to this situation or your situation that I'm looking at on these pieces of paper. Um, one of them is this. What do you think? Do you think it's appropriate for you? And they might say, yes, I'm really infused by it or no, I'm really not. I'm really unsure. And then you go to something else because like we say, you've got plenty of other tools in your toolbox. Um, but intermittent fasting can be absolutely fantastic. Um, and I do use it with a lot of people. And then I also don't use it with quite a few people as well. Um, it's quite important with all of these, whatever we're doing, like we say, to address their lifestyle. So you do need to talk about the importance of exercising within it. But as a starting point, it can be a really good one just to get people on board. And like I say, give them a bit of structure, get them to be having better meals. And then you can actually address the food more specifically when you see them again, if they've got the regime under their belt. Um, but it can be quite a good one, especially people with sugar cravings, to try and get them under control. The one really, really important thing, though, is to make sure that they are properly hydrating. Because when you do this, people will actually producing a lot more metabolic waste and they can get things like headaches especially if they've got wonky blood sugar measurements and if they're not hydrated properly they will feel awful so in the absence of eating in the morning I'm talking about people having a good liter of water herbal teas things with ginger and turmeric and then to try and get liver flow kind of going in the morning um, but that's quite a quite an important one that they are really really hitting their hydration levels if they're fasting in any way at all um, that's good. Okay. Okay. So moving on, high protein diets, high protein, low carb. This is what people kind of tend to talk about in terms of, again, things like blood sugar, but you have to be quite specific because if somebody comes in and says that they're following a paleo diet, that could be a paleo diet that's wonderfully rich in grass fed organic meat, a little bit of poultry, a bit of wild fish, some eggs, those kind of things, and lots of lovely root vegetables and leafy things. And then somebody can come in and they're eating bacon and eggs for breakfast. There is literally not a vegetable in sight, um, which is quite difficult, but they're basically just having protein throughout the day, which in itself is not going to be giving them that much. It will be giving them some stuff, but they're going to be very low on their micronutrients, which we've already addressed in these people. They are going to be naturally low on those anyway. So we want something that's got those abundant, natural, uh, sort of fruity, leafy, vegetable things in there. Um, when I tend to do high protein, low carb, in inverted commas, I actually tend to do something called carb backloading. So I never think that it's useful 
to remove carbohydrates from somebody unless they are a fully blown diabetic and you really need to get them under control. But then that's more about just being very savvy about when they have certain kinds of carbohydrates. And if that's if they are a proper diabetic rather than a pre-diabetic, you'd want to be looking at things like glucose response after certain foods. And you can get people to buy um, sort of, you know, the finger prick tests. And you can get them to yep. test themselves because some, but somebody might have a reaction to one meal and somebody else might have exactly the same meal and their blood glucose and insulin response is completely different. And you don't know that unless you're getting them to actually monitor it. Um, but that's kind of going down that route. So my version is actually to get people to have a protein and colorful vegetable rich breakfast. And this is actually one of my longest clients uh, refers to this as getting I get her to have dinner for breakfast. So she has basically like roasted vegetables and some leaves and a bit of salmon or she might have eggs or she makes herself like a little mackerel pate kind of thing. Um, or she makes fish cakes with ground almonds instead of potatoes and those kind of things. So she'll have that for breakfast. And that sets her up really nicely because her big problem was when I first saw her, she had terrible blood sugar measurements. She had the central adiposity. Her blood pressure was actually okay. Her cholesterol was a little bit off, but not quite. And her sleep was absolutely terrible. And we identified it was because she was having these fluctuations in her blood sugar so acutely during the day, they were being mirrored when she was asleep. So she was waking because her body thought it had no, it was sort of going into a hypoglycemic um, sort of episode. She'd wake, things would normalize, and then she'd go back to sleep. But when you're waking up to 10 times a night, that obviously sets yeah. you off on a complete skew for the next day. <laughs> so it was a bit of a vicious cycle. Yeah. So for her, we found that this protein rich breakfast, in the absence of even root vegetables, sorts her out really, really well. And she has that, and she sets off the day, and she has plenty of water. We also swapped her caffeine out. Caffeine is quite a big one with these things because it's a gastric irritant, but it also influences blood sugar. So if somebody is not willing to take caffeine out, my sort of standing point is it must be after eating and it um, should be between sort of about 9.30 and 11.30 and then you cut it off because after that point, because of the half-life and the persistence of cortisol and caffeine in the body, you're thinking about a 12 hour window. And if you're trying to get somebody to sleep properly and they're having a coffee at 3 p.m., that's still going to be in their body at 3 a.m. And that's not really okay. Um, so yeah, back to the high protein, my carbs. So at lunchtime, what I then say is I'm happy for them to add in things like beans, pulses and legumes uh, and quinoa. So you go for the sort of pseudo grains, the ones that are higher in fiber. There's a bit of carbohydrate there. Um, but again, you're actually encouraging more of a diversity within their diet as well, because a lot of people won't be having these things. So whether, again, it might be that they have something like a lovely piece of chicken with some nice salad. But when I say salad, I mean leaves and then fibrous veg. So they can have tomatoes and a bit of cucumber, but they must also have broccoli or green beans or asparagus or peppers or something else in there, because just giving somebody a piece of chicken and a bit of lettuce is not going to keep them going for a particularly long time and when we're talking about yeah. getting all these things under control we want those fibrous bits um i also encourage things like little bits of avocado bits of tahini dressings but again look at their fat balance if you want them to be metabolizing fat as well fat needs to be present but in a measured quantity so general health maintenance um i would be talking about sort of one to two tablespoons 
of a fat per meal. But if I'm talking about a therapeutic situation here, I'm talking about one tablespoon. So quarter of an avocado, bit of olive oil, bit of tahini mixed with lemon juice or apple cider vinegar, palmful of nuts and seeds. You've got lots of different things to choose from and encourage them to try different ones. But be aware that obviously in the situation, this person is carrying extra weight. They are a bit inflamed. There is the calorie density of fats compared to proteins and carbs. So nine cows per gram versus four in the other two. So you just want to be aware that they're getting the bits that they need, but they aren't shooting themselves in the foot because they read somewhere that they should have an avocado a day yeah. and apply coconut oil to everything because it's going to, they're going to exceed their calorie intake. And I don't talk to them about calories, but I educate them in terms of the foods that they're having in terms of how much they should be having. And then in the evening, what they would then do is they'd add in their whole grain carbs. And that's quite important because you are going to be looking stuff, looking at stuff like blood sugar maintenance overnight. And people used to get very scared about storing carbs um, overnight. And this is where it links very much with the idea of exercising. Because if you look at the insulin sensitivity of fat and muscle cells over the course of the day, it changes. So in the morning, both are more sensitive. So they're more likely to store because insulin shuttles things from the blood to store. But that will progressively decrease over the course of the day. So if you've got somebody and you're doing this carb backloading with them, the one time it really, really suits people is if they are people who exercise in the late afternoon, early evening, because what will then happen is their fat cells have gone to sleep. And when you then get them to exercise, they use up their muscular stores of glycogen, the muscle cells wake up. And then when you give them those lovely whole grain carbs, then it shuttles that any excess into their muscle stores as glycogen. And none of it goes into fat storage. So excellent. It's quite a handy little tip. But again, so if you've got somebody who's a morning exerciser, you might have, and they do quite intense exercise, you might have to adapt when you give them those whole grain carbs and actually say, you know what, because of the way that you exercise and when you're exercising, you can go for having those, that rice and kind of stuff at lunchtime. And then in the evening, we give you lovely root vegetables and beans and pulses and that kind of thing then. But you just tailor it to what they're doing. Um, but so that's that's the high protein, low carb with or without the carb backloading. You can choose. Um, some people suit the carb backloading. Some people don't. Uh, the next one would be obviously to look at the kind of the vegetarian vegan situation. And again, it's one of those. It's an absolute mess because there can be fabulously healthy vegetarians and vegans. And there can be horrendously unhealthy vegetarians and vegans. Absolutely. Uh, it's kind of like the gluten-free concept. People think because it's gluten-free, it's going to be good for you. Oh, my no. <laughs> my thing about I, I am I'm both gluten and dairy-free. I have allergies to both. And I have been for 11 years or something. And the evolution of the amount of products that are available is incredible. And it is true. We have fantastic things out there now. They do cost the same as... I don't know, a second mortgage in your house, or you'd have to take out a second mortgage to buy them. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. there are so many naturally gluten-free ingredients and naturally vegan mm. or naturally vegetarian things out there. Yeah. But there's this huge marketing push behind having these things that you see on the shelves. And I spend a lot of time trying to demystify which ones are kind of good and which ones are bad. If you've got somebody who has got cardiovascular disease risk, like a really high one, their cholesterol is terrible which can happen um and maybe they have other risk factors like gout i mean that's quite a common one as a sort of a co-condition 
um, within these kind of people. You might actually think that for a short period, putting them onto a, a vegan diet would be a really, really good idea. And you'd probably be right. It's whether they can actually maintain it or not. And again, vegetarian, vegan, um, I'm sort of doing a slash, even though they are quite different. Um, you need to be really, really hot on that digestive function because if somebody is going to be adding in those really necessary protein sources, then they've got to be able to break them down. Yeah. And they've probably also got to have the time to do it. And they need to be when I, the way that I say to people about these kind of diets is if you are eliminating foods, you need to be more conscious of everything else that you are having to make up for the fact that you've cut out a huge quantity of potential nutrients. So we aren't anatomically the same as plants. So in order to be able to physically make muscles and bones from leaves and stems, you need to be obviously rotating your plant-based protein sources throughout the day. You need to be aware if that person is going to adequately absorb non-heme iron and convert it to heme iron. Are they able to do the same with calcium? What's like I say, what's going on with their digestive function? All of these kind of things. So short term, maybe it might just be that you say to them, right, okay, we're going to try this and see how you go. And some people might say, oh my goodness, it's like the clouds have cleared and I've never felt better and I won't ever eat meat again. Or it might just be that you say, right, I want you to be vegan for 80% of the week. And then you can have wild fish, very good quality meat and um, some organic eggs two days of the week. That's fine. Maybe you do it that way. Um, but again, it's kind of looking at that person in front of you and saying, do you physically have time to soak and cook lentils and chickpeas and quinoa rather than me saying I want you to be eating these things and then I find out in four weeks time that you've gone down and bought every frozen meat replacement product that you could possibly find um, because yeah. you didn't have time to do that. I was going to say before I went to the middle ground, the other one to touch on because I know it's sort of one that people are quite hot on is keto diets and they aren't something that I, they aren't. It's not that I don't use them and it's not that I don't suggest them. I think they are very, very useful in certain therapeutic situations. And I've seen fantastic results with very specific people. But I think on the majority, they are a slight recipe for disaster in terms of being very fixated on food. And one of the things you will find with most people is that there is an emotional connection to food. There is always a dis. Well, actually, no. To say there's always a dysfunction. If somebody is sitting in front of you and they've got a health issue that relates to the way that they've been eating, there is usually some kind of emotional connection because we do, as humans these days, we see food as reward, we see food as a form of guilt, we see it as a form of pleasure. Very few people actually have a very balanced way of food, but way with food. One of the groups that seem to is the French. They are very, very. They just they eat because they enjoy it. And that's it. There is no kind of it doesn't seem that there's an emotion there um, past the point of just pure enjoyment. And then they stop and it's fine. Everybody else seems to have some kind of thing there. And keto diets, because they are so specific, there is that element there. There's also the fact that they are micronutrient poor. Yeah. So if you are getting somebody to be having five percent carbs, majority fat and a little bit of protein, that's really cutting out pretty much all of your fruit. Um not really having you'll have none of the beans pulses and legumes you won't be getting any whole grains in there you probably won't really be getting fibrous veg in there either and for this cohort of people that's not something that I would really go down the line with yeah um, yeah and you have to be very much monitoring them constantly and I just I find it 
not to be my, that's not the one I would pick. Well, and, and there's a lot of research showing the burden on the kidneys, what it's doing. And that's what you don't want to do, particularly with this specific uh, issue with metabolic syndrome. You definitely don't want to be putting an extra burden on her kidneys uh, with all the excess protein anyway, which most people are doing as it stands. A lot of people are eating far more protein than they really need to be doing anyway, but that's another story. So, um, yeah. um, so do you, do you find that you, you go middle ground a lot? Do you do, if we move on into the Mediterranean diet, do you go with that, go that route a lot? Um, I tend to, I think my, so I probably, I am a middle ground person. I tend to use the high protein, lowish carb with carb backloading with quite a lot of people. And I tend to do intermittent fasting with people, but they think that the, the middle ground Mediterranean diet slots both into both of those. Um, yes. So I, my main thing is getting people to understand the proportions of foods that they should be eating on their plate. So I tend to talk about plates, but then I also tend to talk about hand sizing. Because I think there's very little use because obviously people's dinner plates range in size. And I've been to some places and the dinner plates are larger than my torso. So it's not really helpful if I say you should be having half of your plate <laughs> if it's the size of a small windscreen. Um, yeah. So I <laughs> it's, it really happens. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy, isn't it? I mean, it's insane. But anyway, yes. Yeah, so yeah. go on. This is good. This is good. Yeah. So I tend to say to people, let's talk about your needs in proportion to your hand size, because you can then relate it to the child sat next to you, your husband sat across from you and whoever else turns up at your table. And mm-hmm. um, you can very easily adapt the food that you're putting on your plate based on what you need. So I would say two double handfuls of leafy non-starchy veg and I don't just leave it at that I list them (laughs) so some people they they don't understand what a non-starchy veg is so be that person when you write it give them a list and say aubergines courgettes onions all of your green leafy things and go down to the point you're actually saying like different kinds of cabbage so they understand that they're different things to be having and they can rotate them um I would then say their protein portion should be the equivalent of if they had their hand flat out in front of them So whether that's a piece of fish, it's a piece of meat, it's eggs, if they're having tofu, if they're having beans and pulses, those kind of things, that would be their flat hand. Um, They would then have a cupped handful of their root veg, um, their sort of whole grain bits and pieces, any bread products, pastas, that kind of thing. And then they would add their fats on top. And that would be, I mean, unless I always say that if you're obviously having oily fish or red meat, there is an innate fat content there. So slightly decrease your added fats at the end to account for that. Mm-hmm. But as a general point in this situation, that's about a tablespoon um, or the equivalent of your kind of your thumb. If it's say a piece of hard cheese or an avocado or it's your palms worth of nuts and seeds or another naturally oily food like olives and, try, and obviously dairy would fall in there too. My other thing is obviously fruit. Fruit is fantastically nutritious but people tend yep. to graze on it a lot more than they realize. And they're not so like hot on different kinds of fruit. So if somebody's got a poor HbA1c marker for me, then I tend to say, I'm really sorry, but I want you to only stick to naturally tart fruits, which are great at this time of year, because obviously British seasonal fruits that grow at this point are naturally quite tart. So apples, pears, plums, they can have obviously frozen berries if they want to frozen cherries because you're not going to find really nice ones at this point in the year um and then actually offer them have you ever thought about instead of going for a banana i mean a carrot's quite nice 
they might go, what? Or they say, what about naturally sweet red peppers? They're pretty delicious. Mm. And say, you know what, we can try and start re-educating your taste buds. So have half an apple and half a pepper and have that as a snack with some almonds or a bit of hummus and start seeing how that actually probably sustains you a bit more than if you had a banana or pineapple or mango, which tastes delicious, but it's probably not going to serve you as well as the other things were. I mean, if you're getting somebody from having like other very sweet things, then getting them to have mango instead would be a better idea, but really try not to have them having dried fruit and that kind of thing. And then absolutely pushing for things like the water throughout the day. Yes, hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. Exactly. Oh, well, that's really cool. So as you said before, just so many things in your toolbox to use that that you have. It's a, a wealth of things. But if we move on into supplements, um, mm-hmm. do you use... I mean, obviously, you're food-based. You like to try and get people to start with the foods and the nutrients, getting their nutrients that way. But I'm guessing you're going to be looking to a good omega-3 uh, to help really give them that extra boost and, and some other supplements, Absolutely. as we discussed about chromium and zinc, et cetera, et cetera. But what are your supplements that you like to focus on? And so what do you do about the interactions with medications? So the first thing, of, like I say, like you say, interactions with meds, what meds are they on? Um, if there is a statin there, without a doubt, there's CoQ10 going in alongside um, because that's going to be quite a big one because it will support their energy levels. Um, Omega-3 wise, I think also it's about working out in terms of what they can afford. Um, so I would say if they've got really intense sugar cravings, I would go for a something like the viridian chromium and cinnamon complex and give it to them alongside their meals and that would be like a priority for me um if their gut is out of whack do we need to think more about doing that kind of stuff first in which case obviously we would need to sort of budget for whatever we were doing there whether it's a bit of an antimicrobial protocol or if we need to do gut healing all of those kind of things or maybe we can do that with food we have to sort of assess there there's a lot of actually thinking about the way that we can use food as a supplement there's a huge amount of evidence for the use of fresh herbs and spices for blood sugar regulation and glucose sensitivity so sort of blending things up into fresh pestos into little herb pates really getting them to go to town and see it as a therapeutic dosing so like a, a teaspoon to a tablespoon a day of those of cumin seeds oregano rosemary parsley coriander all blended together in some really good quality cold pressed hemp oil for example which is a really good source of omega-3 get them to be having that as their fat on their lunch and you just melt it onto a piece of cooked salmon or some warm vegetables then you kind of hit two two nails on the head and you've avoided them you've got them thinking about their food again what you don't want to go down the line of is if somebody is in the kind of standard mindset you said, right, I want to do all these things with you and I'm talking to you about your food, but then actually what I've given you is a supplement protocol that's more complicated yeah. than if you went to the doctor and they said, take four pills a day. So I try and keep it on that first time really, really basic. Like say, omega-3 would be quite a good one. A lot of the time there's cause for doing something like a liver stimulation um, bit of protocol, but obviously if they're on a med, you can't be giving that to them at the same time. So it might then be that I say, right, we're going to really go to town on your bitter foods. And so I want you to be having beetroot and walnuts and pumpkin seeds and rocket and watercress. Again, fantastic for a pesto. And just do it that way. And I want you to put ginger into your water and give it a good bash and have that first thing in the morning. 
maybe put a bit of put a bit of citrus zest in there too um, and sort of look at it that way if they are a big drinker which again can happen you might want to think about something like milk thistle um, but obviously again if they're taking any meds like statins that needs to be away from there but give it to them around when they're having alcohol to support their liver function but you might also want to look at things like an anti-inflammatory if they've got a lot of musculoskeletal pain Again, that can be something you get a lot of osteoarthritis at this point in people's lives. That will be lessened by something like a fish oil. But you might also want to look at something like a serapeptase. You might want to look at an MSM um, or something like a joint support. Again, you've got to think about other things like osteoporosis. What about magnesium? They tend to have low magnesium status. If they've got a if they've got blood pressure issues, what's their potassium like? Are you going to concentrate on that through their diet or do you really need to give it a good whack with some potassium and some magnesium to bring it down quickly? Are they on a blood pressure med, which that would then be contraindicated against? Yeah. I think the thing with supplements is you have to you have to pick a, a sort of a little pedestal where you sort of stand from. Have a good collection in your back pocket, but don't make them the arsenal that you turn to first. Make them the thing that you sort of think, right, these are my little magic tricks. They're going to get us somewhere a little bit faster. Let's see what we can do. The one very good product as well that I really like is the Optibac uh, Probiotics for your cholesterol. So if you've got somebody who's got a really out of whack LDL to HDL balance they've um, and they're not taking a statin, then they work really well at bringing down those really high um, cholesterol measurements. The other thing, is, of course, is if you've got somebody with hypercholesterolemia, um, and so they've got that family history of high cholesterol and they're not taking a statin yet, you can use red rice yeast and that works as a natural statin but won't influence CoQ10 levels or anything else. So that can be quite a good one to, to turn to as well because, again, that will affect very swift change on those blood tests. So, again, it's the usual arsenal of things and I really like your tips on taking those herbs and spices and throwing them into the hemp oil. I just think that's, that's a really efficient way and effective way of, of really using the foods as supplements. It saves the, the, the individual money. It makes food creative and interesting, and it really packs a punch, which helps their taste buds, um, enhance their taste buds because that just the, those flavors are beautiful when you let them shine. That's a, I really like those tips. I'm making notes. I love it. I'm writing all this stuff down going, Ooh, I like this. This is good. I'm stealing this. <laughs> well, another great one, for example, when we talk about reframing a dinner if you've got somebody who would usually have pasta with tomato sauce for dinner why not have an edamame pasta with pesto and what you've done is you've given them fantastic amounts of fiber plant-based protein all of those extra bits and pieces chuck in a handful I mean if you can get them to add in some peas or some frozen broad beans as well into that mix great if you literally stall at the fact that you've got them to make their own pesto and try a different pasta you have completely changed that entire meal into something fantastically new so that's another thing I do love lagoon pastas and I will just mention because I'm a bit of a foodie konjac noodles really irritatingly they're all labeled as blinking slim fast stuff (laughs) oh yeah but konjac konjac is a is a sort of it's a fiber it's kind of like a seaweed it's very Japanese but it is resistant starch so you can use them as noodles you can use them as pasta you can use them as rice For somebody with really high cholesterol, really poor blood sugar regulation, when you actually don't want them to be having those, even those uh, complex carbs, you can give them stuff like konjacs. They get the feel and the taste of having pasta and noodles or rice in exactly the same way. So they could be having 
whatever their family's having with that, whether it's sort of like a bolognese and you've got them to put some lentils in as well, but they can have that same meal. You've just swapped it out and konjac works really well at bringing cholesterol back into balance. So if it, if they just rebrand, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you can, that, that's quite a handy tip just foodie wise. Yeah. Well, you can get them to rebrand. You're good at that sort of thing. I'm Do trying. something like that. That's, uh, yeah, oh, I bet you are. I bet you are. No, that's really good. I like that. So uh, do you have any other, I mean, this has all really been fantastic. Lots of really good things that, that we've talked through. Um, and again, I keep saying there's plenty of tools in the toolbox. And I've got some, I mean, it's just, it's terrific. All the little tips and things that you do with working with clients, because it's quite we're complicated aren't we as individuals and it's really that listening as you've said we've talked a lot about your top tricks and tips mm-hmm. um is there anything else that you have to add for right now i mean we could go on and on we could go on and it- on <laughs> um i will I, I think the one thing i haven't really talked that much about is the lifestyle stuff and i said it was very important so just three kind of ideas in terms of relatively manageable things that people might be able to do um when you get somebody to exercise if they're not exercising at all anything you can get them to do will be fantastic one of the really simple things that i can get a lot of people to do and again it links in with things like thinking about bone density is to get people out for a walk with some wrist weights so they don't need to be heavy but if you think about somebody's posture if you get them to stand up and bend at the elbows and march with like a relatively light wrist weight on maybe a one kilogram maybe a two depending on how strong they are what you're going to do is you're going to actually get them to think about being upright but you're going to incorporate into that walk all of the muscles of the chest all of the muscles of the abdomen all of the muscles of the back you're going to work the respiratory system and the cardiovascular system harder so even if they only go out for 15 minutes you've got them doing weight-bearing exercise that will push their stamina So that's a really simple thing to do um, and it gets people outside as well because, again, the big thing about sleep and stress management, exposure to natural light, will also make them feel warm and they feel like they're doing something because you give them a little bit of gadgetry. I mean, it's not, I mean, they cost about seven pounds from Amazon. So it's not going to be that you have to get them into the gym with a personal trainer, but weight-bearing exercise is exceptionally important as we age anyway. And this kind of exercise really helps because also you don't want somebody doing too much cardio because that pushes their adrenaline and their cortisol up, which will be counterproductive for what you're trying to do. Um, Linking in with that, if they don't want to be sort of outside or they do have access to a gym, but they're not confident to jump onto weight training, again, not something that I tend to do or advise somebody does if they aren't already quite keen and know what they're doing in terms of form, is to get them to do interval-style uphill walking, which is really fantastic for burning central adiposity. So get them to walk on a sort of, a pace that they can maintain on the flat for about five minutes they can talk to you happily they could probably break into song that'd be fine um and then what you get them to do is you get them to raise the gradient and drop the speed just ever so slightly so they're still marching they can pop their hands down if they need to to support themselves but they're marching and they're striding and they push for as hard as they can for about one and a half to two minutes And then what they do is they bring the gradient back down and they allow themselves to recover for as long as they need. The first time they're doing it, you just let them sort of have that recovery period, whether it's two minutes, whether it's five minutes, fine. And then you get them to do another interval and they continue to push. And what the idea is, is over a period of time, they will gradually make those push times longer and the recovery times shorter. 
but you're you're actually again challenging the cardiovascular and respiratory systems you're holding somebody in that form of metabolism where they'll burn stored fat rather than going into really intense cardiovascular exercise and it's manageable mm. and they can tailor it to what they're doing and again 15 minutes 20 minutes better than nothing and gradually they can add other things on but it's quite an easy one to say to somebody I just want you to go and do this. It doesn't involve you needing to understand what a free weight is. I don't want you to do a like a lunge or anything that could hurt you. And if they're a bit sore or a bit creaky, they can just adapt their speed and their gradient intensity to suit them. Um, so there are a couple of little simple things I try and get people to do when it comes to exercise. If they don't have time because they're busy and they're working, get them a really good rucksack and get them to walk to a different tube station. Like that's a very simple one. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was a great idea. Yeah, I mean, it's very simple, but just say, how do you carry your stuff to work? Oh, you have a shoulder bag. Do you find that means that you can't walk very far? Great. Well, you're going to wear a pair of trainers now, and you're going to have this really good backpack with a chest strap, and you're fine. Um, so that works quite well. And the final thing before I stop talking is if they have access to a sauna or even better, an infrared sauna, get them in it and get them in it as much as you can. Obviously, being cautious of hydration and electrolyte levels. But in terms of improving metabolic um, rate, in terms of getting rid of it, if they're sort of talking about waste elimination and fat burning and or getting all those toxins out of the body, you're bypassing the need for them all to come out through things like the urine and the feces. You're going to get them out from the skin. Infrared obviously penetrates deeper than a normal sauna. It means you can last in there longer and it will actually excrete metabolic waste from a cellular level rather than just a more superficial level. Um, and there are great sort of swathes of evidence now coming out about its use for DNA replication and all that kind of stuff. So cool. it's a really nice one. And they are popping up around more. Um, sort of, you can find them better. Actually, the weird thing is they come out because everyone's obviously more concerned about their aesthetics than about their long-term health. You'll find lots of places have them for skin. Um, but infrared saunas are fantastic if I can get I get people in there sort of to start off with if they're not very good with heat again it's one of those things like Epsom salt baths if somebody doesn't like heat they're going to feel weird don't push them to do it if they yeah can do it then get them to sort of do 15-20 minutes twice a week to start off with and then get them to go up more to the 30 to 45 minute mark um and people will actually feel so regenerated afterwards they'll really enjoy it and that's when they need to be having an additional liter of water per day and either an electrolyte supplement or a pure vegetable juice, and I'm talking green vegetable juice, or something like a bit of raw coconut water afterwards to replace those electrolytes. I don't tend to go for raw coconut water because people will try it once and they'll love it and then they'll be drinking it all the time. And obviously it's relatively rich in natural mm. sugars. If you can get somebody around to sort of celery, cucumber, ginger, maybe a little bit of green apple or some citrus um, and some broccoli, once you've come out of one of those saunas, you feel so cleansed and wonderful. People will actually dive into that kind of thing and they're fine. Yeah. Um, I mean, add, add a bit of beetroot for the nitrates and their heart health if you want to, but very much go down the route of 75% green veg and then add the sweet bits at the end. Um, but yes, and also as a little concluding point before I literally stop, before we go on forever, in terms of making sure that you're kind of following things through, with somebody give them all the stuff but very much continue to get those objective measures over a period of time so do 
get them back to their GP, keep in touch, like we said. And um, even if it's just that you get the GP markers repeatedly, track them every three months. HbA1c will, will change over three months um, and so will cholesterol. But fasting blood glucose and things might change a little bit more readily than that. So just keep an eye. It's interesting, all those things for something that's actually quite complicated. There's some basic steps that people can take. And that leads back to what you were saying in the very beginning. They're in control and they can make these changes without having to take medication and or at least giving it a try first to see if it does work before having to jump full tilt into taking conventional medicine, which is, as we've said, it's there for a reason, but we want to use it. So it's really going to be when it really needs to be used as opposed to being able to use food that can make so many wonderful changes within our health and well-being, which is amazing. So (laughs) it's fantastic. All for the love of food. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. All for our love of food. We do love food, don't we? So, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule. I know you're busy. I know you've had a a, a crazy week, but it's really been interesting to hear your, your insights and what you do with clients. It's been an absolute pleasure. As I, as we said, I could probably continue talking for the rest of the day. Thank you for the invitation. And I, it's, been, it's been great. Well, good. Well, thank you. Well, folks, that's all for today. I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in. I hope you found the information that Phoebe had to share with us on metabolic syndrome interesting. I know I did. Lots of good tips there to be shared. At the end of the day, that's what these podcasts are all about. They are here to support, collaborate, communicate, educate, and I hope inspire. The only way I'll know if I'm hitting that balance, though, is for you to let me know. So there are a couple things I'd like to ask you to do, as always. I'd love to get your feedback. Please send me an email. The email link will be included in the show notes, as will other things that we discussed. I'd also like to ask you to subscribe. And on another note, don't forget, my colleague Nita Beardsley and I are going to host an event in Bristol on the 19th of September 2020 at Engineers House in Bristol. We have great speakers joining us on the day, so watch this space. We will provide more details as and when. But for now, I'd like to wish you great health wherever you are. Bye for now.